dropping kids off in the back. Thank you for your patience this morning. And they're doing some new stuff back there at the children's ministry. Move up Sunday. Tony's taking some steps just to keep things more organized. Uh, you know, always to keep the kids safe, etc. So I appreciate your patience with that as we're kind of going through that. So, and it is a blessing. Actually, one of my favorite things is, and I mean this sincerely, is I love the time of just seeing people talk. You know, Russ mentioned a little bit there about the fellowship at the Harvest Party. What a blessing it is to see the body of Christ just come together and chat. So, let's pray. Lord, as we just come here now, you teach, we listen, let your spirit guide and direct us into all truth. And Lord, take all these things we're talking about this morning, and Lord, lead us, lead us through your spirit in your name. Amen. Matthew 18 is a very interesting chapter, and before we get into what we're going to talk about today, I just want to make a special note of this. I hope you can make time to either be with us next Sunday or grab a copy of the CD or listen to it online, because we're going to stop this morning at verse 14, but chapter, excuse me, verse 15 on, and I don't mean this as some huge statement, it really is a life-changing passage next week, because what the passage about next week deals with is what do you do when someone has offended you? Someone has bothered you, or you have offended someone, or someone has bothered you. Someone has said something about you, someone has hurt you, wronged you, what have you. What is the biblical way to handle offenses and problems and fights and arguments? And when I say it's life-changing, it is because it stops and says, here it is practically. How as believers are we supposed to handle disagreements, fights, and arguments? We'll get into it a little bit here this morning because it builds up to that. But I hope you can make a point to be with us either next week or get a copy of it to listen to. But here this morning, we're going to be talking about children. The main focus here this morning is children. Us having a childlike faith, the idea of ministering to children, and also what can we learn for us as adults when it comes to ministering to kids and us having a faith like a little child. Now, it's a wonderful study when it comes to that because there's kids all around. Now, I was just in the back there, and you see all the kids that are back there. What a blessing that is. It's a blessing to see the kids come in in the morning. It's a blessing to see the junior worship going on in the back. And these children are a blessing. Now, to be honest, that's not something that I always used to look at that way. And anyway, what's over? Dawn and I got married pretty young. We got married when we were 19. And I remember she wanted to have children right away, and I didn't. So we made a deal. She said we didn't make a deal. She said I just told her the rule was we weren't going to have kids for five years. So, and after five years, I tried to get one-year contracts just to kind of. I didn't want children because I would look at children. I used to work in retail. I worked in retail for three and a half years. I see the world's children. I would not want that. Before we had kids, we used to have this mom's group that used to meet out here. And I believe it was on Tuesdays. And at certain times, the mom's group, it was just amazing. The mom's coming, the kids. There's like 20, 30 kids coming. And I was in charge of watching them. I didn't want children. And it's always fascinating because people would look at kids and say, Oh, aren't kids a blessing? And I'd be like, No, they're not. Because some kids are not a blessing, it seemed like. Now, obviously, my opinion on that has changed because now I see the blessing of children. I see what Jesus is trying to say. But at that season, at that moment, when the idea of children or children's ministry or childlike faith, it's like, no, no, that's just not what I saw there. I remember distinctly, like I said, we were back there with doing the, um, the mom's group. And Elias was born on a Friday. 
And we didn't know for the first two of our kids whether they're boys or girls or not. It's one of the few surprises left in this world that's actually a surprise. So we didn't know for the first couple once. And I remember it was a Tuesday, just a few days before Elias was born. And I had so focused on I just wanted a little girl so bad. Just wanted a little girl so bad. Once again, as we were doing mom's group, don't go back and look at the calendar or directories. But there was just a group of young boys at that age that were pretty rough. And I would do this with mom's group, and I would see these boys. And I would see these sweet, angelic little girls. And I thought, Lord, that's what I want. I want that little girl. And so that was the way I was thinking. And it got up to the Tuesday before we had Elias. So Elias was going to come just a few days later. And there was this little gal that came to mom's group. And she was awful. She was just absolutely awful. And it was at that point I realized sin nature is in the little girls just as much as it is in the little boys. Sin nature is in every little child. And part of ministry is just loving them and representing Jesus Christ to them. And so with that being said, let's talk about children this morning. But not just about children, but about us. Childlike faith, how do we minister to this? And it's fascinating how we get to this point, because look at the question in verse 1 of chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, keep in the back of your mind, that question sets off the rest of this chapter. So the disciples are saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, what an interesting question to ask. If you've ever studied out the Gospels, the one thing you see is the disciples are always arguing on who the best is. They always are. What an awful conversation to have in front of the Messiah of who the best is. In fact, in Luke 22, at the end of the Last Supper, hours before Jesus is arrested and beaten and crucified, the disciples have the audacity to have an argument in front of Jesus on which one of them is the greatest. 2,000 years later, it hasn't changed, has it? We still want to be considered the best and the greatest. And we judge that on promotion and better hours and more pay and all this other type of stuff. I have a pastor friend that's coined this term. He says the biggest problem facing the church today is what he calls ingrown eyeballs. The only thing you look at is yourself. And what Jesus is saying is, you want to know who the greatest is? Because I'll tell you who the greatest is. The greatest are the little children. Verse 2. Then Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them. Wow. How did we get to this point, though, at this time of who's the greatest? Well, just do a quick review with me. Just flip back a couple chapters. Matthew 16. What happens in Matthew 16? Jesus says, who do you say that I am? In verse 15. Peter's great response. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus' response. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Verse 17. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, we talked about what that means, but here Peter is kind of singled out in front of all the disciples. Okay? Jump ahead a little bit to chapter 17, verse 1. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brothers, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Now, Peter, James, and John get special treatment. They get to go up on the mountain with no one else. Why do they get to go? Why are they so special? See, we like to look at these apostles, these disciples, as almost having this higher spiritual maturity. The truth is, when you read the Gospels, they have sin nature just like us. Peter gets singled out. Peter, James, and John get to go up the mountain. Why don't we get to go up on the mountain? I tell you, I know with my kids at home, I literally do this. You guys have seen me. I have my planner that I carry with me everywhere I go. On the back of my planner, right here, I have the kids' names. 
And I put a check mark beside them when they get to go do something special with dad. So that way when they come up and say, it's not fair, the last time you took him or you took this person, you didn't take me. I know, I look at my list right here and guess who's up next? Tyrus. Tyrus is the next special one to go up on the mountain of transfiguration with dad. So that's what happens. Because everybody wants their little piece of the pie. Everybody wants to be special, important. Look at me. Jesus says, you want to be special, important? It's like being like a child. In fact, Jesus goes one step further in the book of John. He goes, you want to be great? Get on your hands and feet and wash people's feet. He set the example. So they get to go up on the mountain. They get the special trip up the mountain. They come home. Guess what happens when they come home? Verse 16. I brought the demon-possessed child to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Wow. Peter, James, and John were up on the mountain. Don't you think they talked a little bit about that? Did you guys ever try this to cast out the demon? Because if we were here, that's what we would have done. What did you guys do up on the mountain? Well, Jesus said we can't talk about it. That's, we just can't. It's too special. He told us not to tell anybody. And then a little bit later, Peter gets special treatment in verses 24 through 27 because he's the one that gets to go fishing and catch the temple tax coin. Jesus didn't send me fishing. Can't you see Thaddeus saying that? I didn't get to go fishing to catch a temple tax coin. So for the last couple chapters, there's been all this ups and downs with the disciples. You could just see in verse 1 at building to the disciples saying, well, I'm the best. No, I'm the best. He took me up on the mountain. Well, I got to go fishing. And Peter says, don't forget, I'm the rock that the church is being built on. There's this argument. There's this fight. So they come to Christ. Christ says, it's the little child. Verse 3, as surely I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Jesus says, you want to know? It's about a child. It's about childlike Faith, childlike faith, every need, every trust, they don't worry about. They just trust their parents are going to take care of them. They don't even think about it. Now, as we get older, as you've seen your kids get older, they start to question a little bit more. They start to wonder a little bit more. They need more reassurance. But there's that childlike faith when they're young. This morning when I got up to come out to church, uh, Tyrus, who's four, was the only one awake. Tyrus had no concerns no concerns. wasn't concerned if there was enough milk in the fridge for cereal. He wasn't concerned if there was enough fuel in the vehicle to get to church. He wasn't concerned about any of that stuff. He got up. He was just happy to start his day. He knew every need was met. He just trusted his parents would take care of. Nothing to worry about. Childlike faith. And what Jesus is saying is that's what we're supposed to have. Now the problem is, as we get older in life and older in our walk... We start to get smarter, or so we think. So instead of having this childlike faith, it starts to become the little co-pilot thing with God. We run ideas by Him. We think this works out pretty good. Lord, I think you should do this. Have you ever caught your prayer life sometimes trying to direct the God of the universe on what He's supposed to do? Childlike faith. Every need, every trust, I take care of you. Think back to when they walked into the wilderness. Their manna in the morning, their quail in the evening, the water from the rock, the fiery pillar, the cloud. They just had to walk in faith and trust the Lord to meet every one of their needs. They had to. Plus childlike faith. I think of what it says in Romans 16. We're supposed to be simple concerning evil. That childlike, almost naive about the world. Now that's the problem. 
And there's a balanced verse to that. Jesus did say, be wise as serpents, as peaceful as doves. But I hope as believers that we are so simple and naive concerning certain evil out there that we don't get the joke. We don't understand the reference. We haven't seen that show. We don't understand it. Well, the world will look at us and tell us that once again we're naive or back whatever. It doesn't matter. I'm simple concerning evil. I'm completely okay with that. Because I want the childlike faith of trusting every need, every trust, that the Lord's going to take care of it. I remember years ago to Saturday morning men's prayer time, Richard came in and he just kind of made the comment. He goes, I'm just going to start giving every prayer request over to the Lord. Okay, that sounds like a good statement. We say that. I'm just going to give everything. And Richard said, no, you don't understand. He goes, I'm going to literally give just everything over to the Lord. Everything. Because... Who am I to do anything? Why am I trying to do my life? I'm not always right. I don't know what's best for me. Just look at the simple medical things we go through. Your foot starts to hurt. So we ice it. We take some Advil. We do this. We do that. Maybe childlike faith is, Lord, can you just, I'm giving this to you first. There's that situation at work that's coming up. And so what we need to do is analyze it from every angle and get our little to-do list out. Make sure everything's right. Or maybe it's praying fast over it. Yes, we have a personal responsibility to take care of things, but there's this childlike faith of every need, every trust, I'm just going to trust you to do. Now, that's hard to do. That's so hard to do that we have to start over. Look at verse uh, 3. Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted, unless you are changed, there has to happen a conversion. There has to be a change because this is not the way we normally think. We normally think to look out for myself, to make sure I'm taken care of, and to fight for every scrap. No, childlike faith. Lord, I'm just going to trust you. I have to learn I am not always right. I do not know what's best for me. And a childlike faith, I have to be converted and changed to a little child there when it comes to that. What else do I need to do? I have to become, verse 4, humble. Humble. Children, young children are very humble. They don't worry about peer pressure. They don't worry about what other people think. They're just so happy to enjoy life and to be around their parents. There's none of that thought. Even as adults, as we get older and we move past the whole junior high peer pressure thing, it's still there. Childlike faith. The only thing I care about is pleasing my father in heaven. The only thing I care about is my dad. That's what I just want to focus on. And I'm going to humble myself and make sure I'm just putting him first in all that I do and all that I say. So a childlike faith, every need, every trust, simple concerning evil. We have to be converted, changed back to that mentality. We have to be humble to be willing to do that. What about the practicalness of that? How about this? Verse 5, whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. To receive them, to welcome them. See, children really have nothing to offer when they're little, do they? They just take and take and take. But there's such a joy, the blessing and understanding the blessing of kids. And what Jesus is saying in verse 5, can you receive one of those little children in my name? Can you represent Jesus to them? Because that could be some of the greatest ministry you could ever do. Is to go to those kids and represent Christ to them. What we always do before we leave the house is we always just pray, Lord, give us somebody to minister to. But bring somebody into our life and just we want to represent Jesus to them. We had some doctor's appointments here a couple weeks ago. And so we had all the kids get their doctor's appointments in all, all day. So there's seven of them that with the doctor's appointment. So it takes hours. <laughs> so we're all there. 
We have time to kill. We're waiting. They had this little library area where you could kind of kill time. So what would happen is Dawn and I would take one over, and the rest would stay, and we were just kind of killing time and doing stuff. And there was a young boy that was there. And this young boy's name was Brian. Brian had some special needs. Uh, He was autistic. And so what happened was Brian came over to our table, and we kind of have this table taken over. And so Brian comes over and kind of starts sitting with us. So it's like, okay, Lord, this is the child you brought in. This is what we're supposed to receive. So, you know, what's your name? You know, here's our kids' names. And, you know, Brian, where are you from? Um, You know, what type of brothers and sisters do you have? So we're just trying to start a conversation with them. Now, we have to stop right here and do a little side story. You know, Brooke and Shane that have been living with us, one of their favorite words to describe me is creepy. I, I, I take that as a compliment. So we're talking to Brian, and Brooke and Shane are going, stop, this is creepy. You know, Brooke starts going, stranger danger, stranger danger. You're not supposed to be talking to them. Because I'm like, how, you know, how many brothers and sisters do you have? Where do you, I'm not like writing it down or anything. I don't want to make it sound weird. But, you know, Shane's like, James, stop. This is creepy. It's like, this is an opportunity, though. This, this young man, we get a chance to go over and just talk to him and show love to him and welcome him and just receive him. Maybe the world doesn't do that. I don't know. Maybe he doesn't have the support system. Maybe he has no one that cares. But you know what? At this moment right here, right now, we just want to do exactly what verse 5 says. Receive one little child in Christ's name. That's what we're supposed to be doing is representing Jesus to this younger generation so that they grow up and accept Christ at an early age. Now, what does that look like practically? What does it look like practically? I wrote down four things on how you can practically do verse 5. Four things. First, and all of them may not apply to you. First one, serve. Serve in the back. Now, only serve in the back if you're called. If you're not called to serve in the back, please don't serve in the back. Go where you're called and do what you're called. But if you are truly interested and you hear teaching like this, you say, Lord, I want to do verse 5. I want to receive a child in the name of Christ and really represent him. You go back to Tony. If you don't know who Tony is, I'll introduce you. And you say, I have a heart for this. And what areas you need help in, she will give you a list. Take that list home. Pray about it over a week. Don't make a snap decision. Don't decide right then. You pray about it and say, Lord, is there an area where you want me to serve? And I will go back there and I will serve and I'll represent Jesus Christ as a little child. Now, maybe it's not called to go back there and serve. Maybe it's called to go back there and just help. And what do I mean by help? What needs do you have? Is there something that I can buy extra of when I go to Walmart and I'll just throw it in my cart and I can give it to you? You know, for example, we have this service project day coming up the 17th. Do you need an extra hand with that? Excuse me. I can go help watch the kids. I can go help do the projects. You can just go help. Okay, maybe those don't work out. How about you just pray? Maybe you go back and you get a list of the different teachers and helpers, and you put that on your fridge. So as you get up to go to church on Sunday morning, you do a quick glance through, and you say, okay, this person's serving in K through 1. This person's in the nursery. This person's in the junior high. I'm going to just real quick stop and pray for them because they're representing Jesus on a Sunday morning to children, and every Sunday is an opportunity for that child to come know Christ. And lastly, maybe just encourage them. When you go pick up your kids today, tell them thank you. Maybe there's a teacher in the years past that's really been a blessing to your family. Tell them, thank you. Encourage them as they serve on the front lines back there. You know, this is why we put such an emphasis into, like, vacation, Bible school, etc. Because there's such an opportunity to get these kids while they're young and really represent Christ. You know, we went up to Dearborn uh, in July and went door-to-door inviting Muslims to a vacation Bible school. 
Pastor George led it up. I just got off the phone with him here uh, this week, and he's coming out, and he's going to probably be coming out here to church to give an update, and it looks like we're heading back up to Dearborn again. But he said there was over 120 kids that came to that VBS. Over 120 Muslim children came to that vacation Bible school that could then go represent Jesus, hopefully, to their families. Real quick update that doesn't have to do with that. I just want to share this. One of the other things that we invited people up to, there was a, uh, I hate to use the word party, but it was kind of a get-together for the Muslim ladies. And he said 85 women showed up, full burqas, head to toe, showed up for this. And they got a chance to minister to them. He then also said that one of the families that they were going door-to-door with said the last family they went door to door to, they dropped off a Bible for them. No one answered the door. And what happened was, is the woman actually came running out, which in the Muslim culture, that's a big deal, came running out, stopped them, said, I want to talk to you because I knew you were coming. He said, how did you know we were coming? She said, I had a dream last night that someone was going to come and tell me about Jesus. She got saved and so did her family. Up there in Dearborn, the Lord is moving and working. So if that stirs your heart, Pastor George is coming out here in September, and it looks like we're going to go up again and do some more outreach and some ministry. But the point is reaching the children, receiving them, serving, helping, praying, encouraging. Now, what's the flip side to this? Verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it'd be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he was drowned in the depth of the sea. Millstone, big stones they used to crush grain back then. I was reading one thing about Chuck Smith, and Chuck Smith called verse 6, he called it a mafia verse. Jesus acts like he's in the mafia. You mess with one of these kids, putting a stone around your neck, and we're throwing you into the sea. That's pretty serious. Because that's the way we look at it. To destroy the faith of a child? No. To represent Jesus to kids, grandkids, children, nieces, nephews, whatever you're in. To do that, serving, helping, praying, encouraging. That's what we're here to do. And that's what it means in verse 5. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Let's continue on here. Verse 7. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come. But woe to the man by whom the offenses come. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. See, he talks about the warning in verse 6 with the little children, but then he says in verse 7, listen, offenses, depending on your translation, temptations, stumblings, it's going to happen. Let's just make this clear. It will happen. You will offend somebody at one time or another. You will also be offended by somebody at one time or another. You will trip somebody up, and at one time or another, somebody will trip you up. It is going to happen. Now, what are you going to do with that? That's what we're going to get into next week in verse 15, is the practical dealing with this person has wronged me, hurt me, Or, I have wronged or hurt this person. We'll get into that. But at this context right here, Jesus said, listen, these offenses will happen. They will. That sin will pop up in your life and cause a problem. It will. What are you going to do about it? Well, verses 8 and 9. Start cutting off hands, feet, and plucking out eyes. What verses 8 and 9 are trying to say is you need to have a holy hatred of sin. You need to hate sin. 
Hate sin. Hate what sin does to you. It does to your spouse. does to your family. does to your witness. does to your joy. Hate it. Hate it so much that you would say, I'd cut off a hand or a foot or pluck out an eye. Now, does Jesus mean that literally? If you look at the context, I don't think there's anything there to hint that he means that literally. Plus, let's just say it was literal. Let's say there was a man that had a wandering eye. So when he would go out in public, he would look at places and look at women he shouldn't look. So he comes back and says, I hate sin so much, I'll pluck out my eyes. I will never look again. There's enough images and memories stored in that brain to still sin. There's a man that comes and says, you know what? I have a temper. I never want to hurt or harm anybody. So I'm going to cut off my hand. So I will never in anger attack someone. When Jesus said in Matthew 5, if you have anger in your heart, it's the same as killing them. So cutting off hands and feet and plucking out eyes are not going to keep you from sin. What Jesus is trying to say is, do you hate sin in your life that much? Now we have to stop real quick and just ask a very poignant question. Is there a sin in your life that you know is wrong and you hear this and the Lord says, can you hate it enough to get rid of it? Can you? Because look at what Jesus has done, excuse me, God has done, I should say, when it comes to the holy hatred of sin. Think back to the flood. We're going to start over. Think back to Sodom and Gomorrah. Read the book of Revelation. He hates sin. Why? Because he sees what it does to us. You know, 2 Peter talks about just as the dog returns to the vomit. What an awful picture. But it's so true that you have a sin in your life that's bringing you down. So you vomit that sin out of your life. You finally get it out of your system. Then you walk right back over and eat it right back up. That's disgusting. And that's what God from heaven is saying. That's what you're doing with sin. You get rid of it. You wretch it out of your life. But then you go right back to it and say, I want more of it. A holy hatred of sin. But God hates sin, but he loves sinners. If you would just stop right there in verse 9, we all go home today completely, utterly defeated. So fine, I'm cutting off body parts, I'm plucking out eyes, I'm putting stones around my neck and jumping into the sea. No. Verse 10, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Verse 11, right there's the key. The Son of Man came to save that which was lost. Jesus said, listen, I hate sin. That's why I'm giving you an escape route. That's why I'm giving you an option. That's why I'm giving you freedom from this. See, so often we hear this phrase, but we really kind of don't get it. idea of loving the sinner, but hating the sin. The Lord is saying right here, I hate sin, but I love you. And he gives us an example of this. Verse 12. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, surely I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. What a great passage right there. What a great analogy and a picture that there's this one person straying. And Jesus says, I hate sin, but I love that sheep, that lost sheep. And I'm just going to go find them and grab them. Now, I want to steal this point here real quick. This is from John Corson because he made this so straightforward, and I love it. He says, when you look at this here in verses 12 through 14, he goes, what do you see? 
First thing you see is you see unconditional love. This is the love that God has for you. Because why? The sheep went astray in verse 12. It wasn't the shepherd's fault that the sheep went astray. The shepherd was there to take care of it. The shepherd was doing everything they could. It was the sheep's fault that it went astray. Growing up on a farm, we had sheep. I've mentioned this to you many times before. They are, the little lambs are probably the most cute baby animal you've ever seen. But sheep by nature are just dumb. So when you hear that about the Lord calling us sheep, it's almost like God saying, yeah, you're cute but dumb. And it's like, well, he loves us. We go astray. So what does the shepherd do? He goes and gets them. Unconditional love. Isn't that an amazing point? I still run into people that will come in and they'll say, there's no way God can love me. Look at what I've done. Look what I've said. Look how I've acted. I am beyond the grace and mercy and love of God. It's like, no, you're not. He'll leave the 99 and come for you. Unconditional love for those that go astray. What else do you see? It's individual. And one of them goes astray. Does he not leave the 99 and go to the mountains to seek the one? He individually loves you. You are special and unique to the Lord. Now, the world tries to convince us that we're special and unique. And we're not in any way whatsoever to the world. Your job will tell you that every single employee is important. But they'll replace you probably pretty quick. The world will not stop turning if one of us would pass away here soon. In fact, if you just look at the world, if there's a natural disaster or a tragedy, it makes the news for a little bit, then what happens? We just move right on. To the world, we're nothing. But to the Lord, you are an individual, you are unique, and you are special to him. And when the Lord gets you, what does he do in verse 13? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices. Emotional. He rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. He rejoices over the one that was lost and is unfound more than the 99 that are safe in the back. I, I can relate to that. We can have a Sunday morning where the church can be full, standing room only. But in my heart, it's like, oh, I really wish so-and-so was here. Boy, they're really struggling. And this, I, I think it could really have blessed them this morning. And that's what I think about. And it could be the other way. We could have a service where no one shows up. But that one individual shows up and it's like, oh, Lord, you brought the one. I just want to love them and minister to them. Jesus is saying right here, unconditional love. We will go astray. He'll come get us. Individual love. You are personally special and unique to him. And then it's an emotional love. He's rejoicing over us. Well, isn't that amazing when you stop and you think about Christ rejoicing over you? Rejoicing, being so happy that you made a good godly choice. You chose forgiveness instead of bitterness. You chose love instead of hate. You chose to go deeper than just to feed your flesh. He rejoices over that. He sees that. Verse 14, even so it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. God says, I have a special place for the children. And he says, not only do I have a special place for the children, I want you to love them. But not only that, he goes, I want you to have a childlike faith. Every need, every trust, simple concerning evil, that's what I want you to have. Convert, he says, change back to that. Walk in that humbleness. Realize in this world, temptations, offenses, stumblings will come. And we'll get into next week how we deal with that personally. But he says for here, right here, right now, be a child, love the child, represent me to the child. 
which is just a good time right now. Just I want to plug something real quick. You know, we mentioned about some stuff in the back. If you so feel led, I also want to share this too. Starting up September 13th on Tuesdays. September 13th on Tuesdays. This is going to be going for 10 weeks over in Holgate for grades 4 through 6. Uh, Donna. Donna right there. Donna is going. Donna is shy. She is really shy. So if you try to go talk to her. Tuesday, September 13th for 10 weeks. Grades 4 through 6 over in Holgate doing a kids club again doing a kids club again so if you feel so led and you say i'm in the holgate area and i want i got some time on tuesdays and i want to go represent jesus talk to donna uh i think richard and betsy richard and betsy are you in here do you guys already leave they had to leave for something um they also do a kids club over in deschler as well to go over there and represent you know the lord there the kids i tell you if this is something lord stirs your heart but i'm gonna go back to one of the points i said earlier only do it if you're called just make sure you're called and maybe you're not called to go physically serve there but you can be called to pray for them you can be called to encourage them. Donna was so nice last year when she did that. She actually handed out a list of the names of all the kids that were going. So those of us that weren't going to serve, we could just take time and pray for those children. Never even met them, but just pray for those kids. And what a blessing that can be. I tell you, let me just repeat this again. We're called to minister to the kids. We're called to love them. We're called to represent Jesus to them. But we're also called to be like them like them every need every trust in him simple concerning evil humble excited just to learn about the lord just excited about it and jesus says listen i love you with that love unconditionally individually emotionally because i want you i want you personally boy what a blessing that is worship team if we can come forward here let's pray heavenly father thank you Thank you for being a God that loves us, a God that wants to be involved in our lives, Lord.